0: My name is Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patio 11 on the internet. I'm here with uh, Matt Levine at uh, Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Matt has the good fortune of doing business under his own name. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Matt Levine, for those of you who don't know him, uh, writes Money Stuff, which is a well followed newsletter uh, that virtually everyone in tech and finance reads every morning. And if I were to articulate uh, what keeps bringing me back to it, uh, Uh, One is that uh, you have a deep expertise on some of the actual things that are being discussed in uh, uh, a way that many commentators on the issues don't. One is that uh, you bring a couple of different lenses to what are often complicated topics and you can tease out the nuance of those things. And that one is that you just have a crackling good command of the English language and humor in it. And so it's always just very enjoyable to read. Um, And so I think we're going to be talking today about uh, the intersection between finance and technology. And finance and technology are quite similar industries these days. I think there's this perception that uh, they're a walled garden, which you have to be members of a credentialed uh, class to learn the language, have the relationships, and be able to appreciate uh, uh, what's actually going on with them. And uh, I think that that isn't true and that that can't be true. Um, One is that finance and technology are virtually everywhere in our daily lives these days. I pull out the device in your pocket if you don't believe me. Uh, And the other is that uh, the... Uh, finance and technology are incredibly leveraged ways for us to make an impact on the issues that we as a society care, uh, care about. And I realized I forgot to introduce myself, um, whoops, uh, my name is Patrick, I work at Stripe, and uh, I work at the intersection between uh, computer systems and the global uh, financial economy, which are also these like weird, complex beasts that uh, we have an abstraction to reason about, but that there's actually a fun underlying reality, 20,000 leagues below the sea, where uh, computers are talking, to computers and humans are talking about humans with that, I would love to talk to you a little bit about this. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. Um, so, back in the day, after you were a high school classics teacher, if I understand right, uh, you worked at an investment bank doing, and I'll see if I get the language correct, um, uh, structured products, specifically equity derivatives. Yes. Can you tell for like a civilian sort of audience, what does that actually mean?
1: Well, it meant two things. So one thing, I did, so I was in a group that was called Structured Equity Group, in investment banking. One thing I did was underwrite convertible bonds, which mm-hmm. means that companies want to raise money. They can raise money by selling bonds. They can raise money by borrowing money from like lo- the loan market. Mm-hmm. They can raise money by selling stock, or they can do convertibles, which are bonds that convert into stock. So they are very much a derivatives product. They're sold to arbitrageurs who like hedge them in complicated ways. So it's a way. Wh- it's like you're going to like the most sort of, st- to like weird tech companies, but also the most sort of straightforward normal companies and saying, hey, would you like to raise money by selling your volatility? And they say, tell us more. Mm-hmm. And often there's like tax trade, you know, tax complexities or accounting complexities involved. So it's a, it's a more structured and complicated way for companies to raise money than the mm-hmm. normal ways to raise money. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's advantageous to them, but it was like very much a, a telling them that story and trying to walk them through the complexities. The other thing that we did was corporate equity derivatives, which is um, (coughs) companies doing derivatives, mostly companies doing derivatives on their own stock. Occasionally weirder things like private equity firms doing margin loans on stock they owned, but mostly companies doing derivatives on their own stock, meaning uh, tax and accounting trades. Mm -hmm. So companies buying back stock by selling puts to an investment bank it -hmm. doesn't you don't say that but that's what it is they sell puts to an investment bank and also companies doing call spreads or call options overlays with their convertible bonds which Mm -hmm. is a way to uh, change the structure of the convertible bonds and get some tax advantages Mm -hmm. so I don't know how civilian comprehensible that was. Um,
0: <laughs> I think we probably lost some people. Yeah. One of the nice things about this is that we can break it down into like individual uh, units and sort of like analyze the unit. Yeah. I think that's a, a common way of looking at uh, both like very complicated technical systems and very uh, complicated financial systems. So let's start with like one basic building block. What is a convertible bond exactly?
1: So a convertible bond is a bond that can convert into stock. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Often you would say it's a bond plus a call option on stock. Mm-hmm. So a bond is a bond. You borrow money, you pay back money with interest, you know, over five years. Uh, a call option is like you can buy, you know, you can buy a stock at some premium to today, at some fixed price, uh, usually at some premium to today's price. Mm-hmm. So the call option, the convertible bond is a bond with a call option embedded. Mm-hmm. It's a bond. If uh, if you want, in five years you can just get your money back, but. If the stock goes up you can also exercise a call option and hand in the bond Mm -hmm. in exchange for some number of shares of stock Mm -hmm. so uh, the thing that you're selling to investors is a bond which is like a credit instrument that like the investors are thinking things like "Will this company have enough money to pay back the bond but it's also a call option on stock which is um, which is an equity investment But it's also um, you know Call options at this point are pretty well understood by, mm-hmm. like, there's, like, math around them. Mm-hmm. And, like, the canonical math around them is the Black-Scholes formula, which says that a call option increases in value with the volatility of the stock. Basically, because a call option is, like, you have the right to get get stock, but you don't have the obligation to get stock. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is that if the stock goes up, goes up a lot, you get a big payoff. If it goes down a lot, you don't lose any money, except, like, the small, relatively small option premium. So... Uh, It's well understood that the value of an option increases with volatility. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that if you combine those two things, essentially the sort of basic level understanding of a convertible bond is that companies that would have a hard time borrowing money Mm -hmm. as just regular old credits Mm -hmm. because they are speculative tech companies or they're like speculative biotech companies or like, you know, they have no earnings or whatever. uh, Companies like that could often borrow money from the convertible market because their credit wasn't great but their stock was really volatile and so they'd combine those two and go out to investors and say wow you know we have volatility here we'll pay for that mm-hmm. so that's like the sort of like core of the market and then it's also just like you know it's a trade mm-hmm. and so sometimes companies that could borrow lots of money or did borrow lots of money in the regular market would say we can get attractive pricing on a convertible so we're going to do that
0: so i think this answers one of the questions that i get asked a lot about the finance industry which is that uh, uh, where and how is the value created here? Like, as a technologist, do you think of things like platforms and like the existence of a platform like uh, Stripe or like Google as it, uh, Google or AWS is that uh, it creates this shelling point where um, the fact of that being available makes people able to build things directly on it and build an ecosystem around it using the availability of that as like an input into the ecosystem. And what you're describing to me is that um, there are companies that are doing valuable things that wouldn't have the ability to raise capital if they just uh, were to be judged on their cash flows, like a bank would judge them or the bond market would traditionally judge them, which, because of like the very fact of their speculative nature, have the ability to uh, raise the capital that they need to uh, take away these opportunities uh, because they're, um, uh, uh, they have access to the convertible market. And the access to the convertible market uh, is brokered by a... Uh, investment bank that sits in the middle and knows who is very interested in buying volatility today and who is very, uh, interested in uh, structured products to uh, uh, get access to money yeah I mean I think a lot of like what the
1: industry does is like put you know ideas together with money, mm-hmm. and a lot of like the sort of value out of the of the industry is is sort of about investor segmentation and knowing who is looking for what kind of ways to, to put their money to work. Mm-hmm or who has like what kind of sensitivities around different kinds of structures. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes that's as basic as like equity investors like ideas that will go up a lot Mm -hmm. and bond investors like ideas that won't go down too much, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's like, you know, tranching of synthetic, you know, structured credit instruments where it's like, some people really need this triple A rating and other people really want this yield and you can like put things in a pot and separate them out of the pot in a way that, that like, different people get what they want mm-hmm. and are willing to pay more for, for that thing than for the undifferentiated mass.
0: I think um, one of the most revealing things that you ever wrote in your column, which was a big aha moment to me, was that uh, finance as an industry specializes in taking like really complex uh, enterprises that uh, have a bunch of different stakeholders behind them. And so, for example, if you think of like the simplified example of a retail bank, there's depositors and there's bondholders and there's equity. and um, depositors, because they always want to be able to get their money back, can't cause a bank to exist by, by themselves. They need some sort of backstop. Bondholders uh, wouldn't, uh, uh, would likewise not just be able to cause the bank by themselves. And uh, the equity is too volatile to be able to pr- provide the protection to the uh, 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 depositors, but you bring them together and then suddenly a bank. Uh, and so um, it's interesting that finance like creates these opportunities that wouldn't otherwise exist in the world. Right, I mean um, a bank
1: to, is a sort of very, like, a way to analyze a bank is that it's like this sort of structured finance mm-hmm. entity where there's like a tr- there's like a pool of stuff, mm-hmm. pool of assets, and you issue tranches of claims on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And like the lowest tranche of claim is bank equity and it's supposed to be volatile. Mm-hmm. And the highest tranche of claim, this is not exactly right, there's, there's other like sort of external guarantors and stuff, but the highest class of claim is like bank depositors who always have to get their money back. Mm-hmm. And so you do a lot of you know, banks do a lot of and investors do a lot of but also regulators do a lot of optimizing around what that structure looks like mm-hmm. and how uh, and and how to make sure that like the senior tranches always get paid back and the junior tranches appropriately
0: bear, appropriately bear risk and things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's interesting to me as someone who works in technology and primarily sees things from like the product and lens on the companies uh, that finance has so much to say about uh, the uh, sort of like inner logic of how these companies operate. And um, one example that you brought out, and before I talk about specific companies in tech, I should say, I've uh, the a disclaimer. I work for a technology company that uh, does uh, financial infrastructure, and so we work with a lot of companies. Anything I say from here on out is my own opinion. Um, so Netflix, for example. N- Netflix has uh, equity that people really want to own for some reasons. Um, and uh, Netflix also issues a lot of debt. And Netflix probably wouldn't be able to issue debt if you were to just read their balance sheet and read their um, cash flow statements uh, in the traditional fashion. But there's some way to reconcile the fact of the equity such that Netflix debt is really attractive. Do you wanna walk people through that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of ways and like you can sort of like do it at different levels of like m- sort of mock scientism. But like, you know, the simplest way is like if you are a money losing technology company that uh, has a, has a very high stock valuation, then there's a sense of like, well, people are going to put more money you know people people believe you know equity investors believe in this story Mm -hmm. and so they're willing to invest more in it and so if like you ever get to the point where you need to pay back your debt and you don't have any money you can probably raise more money in the equity market Mm -hmm. that's like there's some problems with the science of that but that's like the basic intuition it works great um there's like another level which is which i've written about and which is sort of like pseudo-scientific but um you know there's a model of companies as uh as, as there's a model of sort of equity being a call option on the value of a company. So you have a company that has some value and the, uh, the equity is the sort of like junior tranche. And so basically like if you paid off the debt, the equity holders would own the company free and clear. So it sort of feels like a call option. Um, and from that you can build a model of like a a sort of capital structure arbitrage model of saying like, if, if, you know, if the equity tells you one value, like what does that read through to the value of the debt and vice versa? Um, and if you think overly seriously about that, you can get uh, not only a model of like what the company is worth, but you can also get, uh, you know, one of the magical things about like the Black-Scholes formula that, um, that like informs a lot of option pricing is that it doesn't just tell you a price. It tells you how to manufacture that price by like by trading the underlying securities in order to uh, achieve the value that the Black-Scholes model tells you. And so like one thing that like, the Netflix model suggests is like, you know, loosely speaking, if you want to lend money to Netflix and you don't think it's a good credit, you can short some stock or you can buy put options on the stock or you can do other things to manufacture the value of the debt in the um, in the in the in the equity market that has that places this enormous value on the company. And so, you know, basically, you know, simplistically, you can short some stock. And then if the stock goes up, you lose money on that, but you get paid back on your debt and the stock goes you know if the the company goes to zero you like don't get paid back the full amount of your debt but you get a lot of money on the stock that you shorted and like you can sort of like do some fake math around how much stock should you short and how should you adjust that hedge over time uh and so like that is a um i don't think people do that like i don't think that it works exactly but that intuition can inform you know can make you feel more comfortable lending money to them um because like there is this sort of like intellectual structure that lets you say like yes there is a real like interpretation of this equity value as like underlying the debt and so you can go off and trade on that
0: i love that there are kind of like multiple layers to this discussion in which there's a purely academic layer where sitting down with a math, math paper in front of us we say that the uh the uh, option value is worth x because the black scholes formula says that um but that uh, finance makes the Makes the academic uh, like understanding of a company executable in that you could theoretically go out to the market today and put in place exactly the trades implied by that formula, and thus get the result of that. And then, because we are aware that like we have those primitives to put in place uh, to put in place the trades, and uh, we have this like understanding that the market is just one giant shelling point for where everyone thinks like the correct values are today, we don't actually have to put in place the trades because the uh, the like implicit existence of, tra- of trades possible on that model makes the, uh, in this case, it makes the uh, debt more secure than the like, traditional underwriting standards for debt would have it.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, like there, there's a lot of stuff in finance where like prices are sort of set by a no-arbitrage model, where it's, if this price moved away from that price, then someone will be able to come in and make a risk-free profit, and mm-hmm. so, you know, and those, those arbitrageurs will keep the prices in line. And if you sort of believe deeply enough in that, you don't really need the arbitrageurs, right? You can just be like, well, the price of this thing is X because that's what the no-arbitrage model says, and there's no reason that it shouldn't hold, right? Sometimes there are reasons it shouldn't hold. But if there's no reason it shouldn't hold, you can, like, derive a price, and then you can just say, well, that's the price, um, even if no one is actually sort of, like, working to keep those prices in line.
0: Mm -hmm. So from the technology side of things, um, there are some arbitrages that it seems to be like, hmm, computer can probably figure out that that arbitrage exists, Uh, like... The classic example of arbitrage is if there's an exactly identical thing in place A and place B, and you happen to be aware of, of both of those things, then the prices should be uh, identical, modulo some sort of like loss uh, involved in uh, like execution of the trades. Yeah. And, that and can in do. fact,
1: those arbitrages are done by computers exclusively yeah. all the time, right? I mean, like there are, you know, S&P 500 futures that trade in Chicago and like, you know, the underlying stocks trade in in New York and like some computer is sitting there watching them and if they get out of line by more than a certain amount, it sends orders in both directions and like, you know, a human programmed that computer, but like no one is hitting that. A few people are hitting the buttons fast, but like for the most part, that is a computerized arbitrage.
0: So where are the like more interesting kind of intellectual arbitrages on uh, finding um, holes where there should be something that exists in the financial markets and realizing ah this there's an intuition here that uh, the uh that uh for whatever reasons computers haven't picked up or the other participants haven't picked up, or I guess well, if we could answer that question easily we'd be uh yeah
1: i mean like like conceptually the answer to that question is sort of like um is often like like arbitrage, you know, there's, like, a sort of classic form of arbitrage which is, like, buying one thing in one place and selling it in another. Um, it's often, like, extended very broadly to mean, like, mm-hmm. other ways to make money. Yep. Um, like, like, one, like, conceptual thing that I think, like, requires some, like, human intuition maybe is there's a lot of just sort of, like, behavioral stuff at, at all levels, right? I mean, mm-hmm. some of that is, like, people, uh, behavioral stuff meaning, like, humans do stuff that is like is not like at an immediately apparent level like financially rational Mm -hmm. and you can like be on the other side of that stuff and make money Mm -hmm. um often it is rational in some deeper sense right if it's not like like immediately accessible um so like like the most basic level of that is like there are people who now have programmed computers mostly to do it but who like know that like most people prefer certain kinds of stocks you know like they prefer stocks with certain characteristics, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, 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 you know, um, and and if you buy stocks with the opposite characteristics, like that, reliably generates a, a positive return. And that's now like been computerized, right? And they're like factor funds that like buy the stocks with the right characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also like you know, a lot of um, you know. I think of like like one way to st- tell the story of of private equity firms is that like there is a behavioral preference by public company shareholders and managers to act in certain ways that are economically inefficient one big one is they the private equity people would tell you historically would tell you um public companies have an inefficient preference to not have too much debt because mm-hmm. debt is scary and you might lose your job but like it might be more efficient to have more debt, in part because the tax treatment of debt is better, but also in part because you're like leveraging up the returns and you know, making more bets on and making more money. Mm-hmm. And so a big part of like the early story of private equity was people just saying, We could have more debt. Mm-hmm. And public company investors didn't like it and public company managers didn't like it, and so private equity companies would buy those companies and lever them up and have more efficient capital structures in ways that were just at a human level unattractive to normal people Mm -hmm. but that if you could just look past that you can make money Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of stuff like that where it's just sort of like you know I've been writing a lot recently and this is like a story where it is harder to tell the story of the social benefit but I've been Mm -hmm. writing a lot recently about um, hedge funds doing weird stuff in the market for credit default swaps where like You have like some derivatives trade and you like really intensely read the document and you come up with a thing that seems to be allowed by the document and makes you a lot of money Mm -hmm. and that no one else expected. And like that's like a sort of form of like behavioral, you know, like you're profiting by other people not expecting the weird thing that you came up with. Mm -hmm. And in these stories, it's often harder to see the like, you know, private equity, like a lot of people don't like private equity, but there's Mm -hmm. a real case for like just the like economic efficiency. Mm Possibly it's just the tax problem, but like possibly it's economically efficient. Um, How much
0: of private equity's value add do you think is um, sort of like managerial talent uh, versus how much is uh, things like capital structure arbitrage, uh, uh, better tax treatment, et cetera? I don't know, and it's very variable. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. I I think that like over time it has become a far more operational managerial talent Mm -hmm. kind of story than it used to. Like the early days of it were just like, oh, we'll leverage a company, it's so easy, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think modern private equity, Puts a lot of emphasis on operational talent, um, both in terms of like having their own like deep operational bench, and also like incentivizing managers better than public companies can mm-hmm. do it. Just because um, it turns out that like really good managers are valuable, and like there's some like awkwardness around public companies paying really good managers a lot, mm-hmm. but you can pay them a lot if they're in private equity. Um, at the same time, though, I mean you still have stories like you know like Dell went private and then went public again, and like always under the same management, and. Like That story is not about Michael Dell being a better manager when he worked for private equity firms than he, when he worked for the public. It's a story about risk appetite of different types of um, investor bases mm-hmm. and like what kind of capital structures, but also what kind of operational things you could do with different
0: risk appetites. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, I think as a competition is heated up in private equity for the firms that private equity firms typically buy, which are largely larger companies, um, they've uh, sort of the frontier at which uh, firms are playing has uh, changed. And one thing, so um, I got my start on the internet selling bingo cards to elementary school teachers. Uh, very small business. And I deal with a lot of other uh, relatively small software companies. And uh, there are several private equity firms right now that are sort of in the business of going to uh, software firms that have like a $2 million or $10 million enterprise value and buying them and running a portfolio of them. Um, uh, and. Some companies that might not hit those exact numbers are like Constellation Software, which happens to be publicly traded in Canada. Um, Virtu, sorry, Vista Partners. I uh, always get those two confused. Uh, and uh, it's interesting. I think part of the playbook there is um, uh, the traditional like PE model, and partly is just uh, you know there's a certain level of like implied experience. Uh, if uh, if you are a manager who has gotten a firm of probably 10 to 20 people to an enterprise value of $10 million, and it's like not necessarily the level of implied experience or uh, or sophistication as a, a PE firm partner might have. And so they like, buy a hundred software companies and uh, then uh, have like 10 simple rules that you are going to do this year. And then that creates an anomalous amount of value that the entrepreneurs wouldn't necessarily have prioritized uh, as their top 10 things to do this year. Yeah. Um, my one funny catchphrase is that I always tell software people, charge more, charge more, charge more. and of Several mid- million words that I've written, I, I despair about any any bit of writing being more impactful than that one, despite how <laughs> little intellectual content <laughs> there is, because we have this like cultural undercurrent in the software com- uh, community of just undercharging by a lot. Yeah, right.
1: Um, right. I mean, that's sort of like like that is analogous to some of the, like the behavioral like mm-hmm. arbit- you know it, possibilities in finance, where it's just yep. like. If you have a culture of charging less, and you can just charge more, like there you are, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, and. Right, yeah. Yep. So we. Were I often think that, that like violating some sort of cultural norm is a good way to make money mm-hmm. in in a financial business because like the cultural norm is uh, is is holding everyone else back, but like you can just sort of plow through it and make mm-hmm. money. Um, yeah.
0: I think that. Uh, Um, in tech as well, uh, we we probably wouldn't say violating, we'd use the word like disrupting, or uh, creating a new cultural norm, but uh, the, you know, um, like high schoolers in the United States in 1980 didn't care about their score on a social media application, and now they do, Uh, and that creates a a business around it, uh, for for good or for ill. Um, So we were talking about how different different constituencies with like different risk-taking tolerances uh, help uh, sort of uh, power of the magic that is finance. And I think that that uh, maps directly to um, uh, to tech as well. Uh, like the, if you were to map out the stereotyped uh, traditional uh, model of a company that grows up to be a unicorn, uh, it starts early in the life of the company with uh, uh, angel investors uh, who are um, in tech these days, typically folks that have operational experience at other tech companies. Possibly they ran one, possibly it's a product manager at Google, etc., they write a relatively small check just on the basis of um, does it seem like this team is likely to be able to get something to market and does it, uh, uh, ha- is the prototype that they, they produced, uh, is this something that I could see myself loving? Um, and then uh, there is the more traditional and more professional money from uh, uh, venture investors, but uh, the uh, venture investors also specialize in a way that is not entirely obvious outside of technology. And um, early stage venture investors, what we would call seed stage, uh, largely focus on, okay, can you like, build a business around this prototype that you probably have? Um, and then later stage uh, venture investors are much, they care much more about growing the business, growing the organization, making things repeatable, um, getting some level of financial rigor in there. And then 15 years ago, we would have said, uh, and then you go public, but these right. days, private is the new public. Right. Can you tell people a little bit about that?
1: it's private as the new public i mean it's you know in financial journalism like there's like this sort of cultural narrative set up around like companies are private and then they go public and like that's a sort of like pivotal step in their evolution Mm -hmm. and that comes from a time when like there were real caps on how big and how quickly you could grow as a private company Mm -hmm. because the money was in public markets because there were mutual funds and like just everyday people could invest money in public companies and private companies could not raise that much capital. Um, and like, that's not true anymore really. Um, in lots of ways, just straightforwardly, like a lot of companies have raised like a billion plus dollars (laughs) in private markets. And some of that comes from like the growth of like the venture industry, but a lot of it comes from traditionally public investors investing in private companies. So you have like Fidelity and, and uh and capital and, and wellington all buying stakes and big tech yeah. unicorns um some of it comes from like abroad where like it used to be that like you know national boundaries were more of a constraint on investment now like you have a lot of sovereign money and mm-hmm. like you know chinese and japanese technology companies and all mm-hmm. these people investing with large sums in uh in um in u.s tech companies mm-hmm. um and vice versa uh and so And and some of it is like weird structuring stuff where, like, you know, Uber and and Uber definitely and and Facebook tried to raise money from like retail ish clients of investment banks, like rich clients of investment banks where like rich individuals were pitched on a structured product that allowed them to invest directly in Uber. Um, So there's a lot of stuff like that where just you can raise lots and lots and lots of money while staying private. And so, though, like, there are just later stage uh, investors who, you could call venture, but don't feel like some, you know, that that are now sort of like making public company style bets on these private companies.
0: I think one of the reasons that people are concerned about this is that there's a perception that uh, the private markets are largely a walled garden where you have to be an accredited investor, which um, there's a formal definition, but the informal definition is rich. Uh, And uh, the public markets are where uh, Main Street invests. Mm -hmm. But I think that's, uh, it's true to a point but also false to a point because fidelity is you know they are investing out of mutual funds that anyone on main street yeah, could buy into like, for like 2000 dollars yeah you're
1: hours. not like like uber is not primarily uber as a private company was not primarily funded by fidelity right <laughs> i mean it is it is definitely skewed towards private investors and some of these private investors are investing pension money so it's like not just like rich rich people but mm-hmm. um uh but certainly if you are a regular person investing your 401k you're getting less exposure to the private markets than like their like relative valuations would probably imply right mm-hmm. um so you know that worry seems correct to mm-hmm. me the worry that like regular people you know the worry is sometimes phrases like regular people are not getting access to like the growth and dynamism of the U.S. economy, because whereas it used to be that, like, a Google would go public as a relatively small company and then grow into a behemoth, mm-hmm. like an Apple would go public as a very as a small company and grow into a behemoth, now, you know, Uber goes public as a behemoth and struggles a little bit to, to sort of increase its valuation because mm-hmm. it went public as, you know, with a huge valuation and, and you know, no profit. Um, and so uh, that... You know, if you invested in Uber at like a five hundred million dollar valuation, you made a lot of money, but like mm-hmm. you didn't. Like VCs did, you didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if that's always true, and if like these dynamics that have made pub- private markets the new public markets, mm-hmm. you know, which are dynamics like there being a lot of money from accredited investors, which is like uh, ag- investors abroad, just rich people having more money. You know, mm-hmm. there's like a inequality kind of angle to it Um, but also like technological changes where it's just like easier to just go out and find people just matching buyers and sellers is easier with like the internet and phones and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Those changes have made it such that private markets are an easier place to raise money than it is like bad for regular investors Mm -hmm. and you know.
0: I think that partly it's a uh, response to Like somewhat deliberate policy choices, uh, and both tech and finance uh, uh, sometimes have uh, issues that uh, people want, like you know, the panoply of wants that people have with regards to the financial system or with regards to investing are um, sometimes in tension with each other. Oh yeah,
1: right. Uh, I mean, you know, you want every company to be public, but you want only safe companies to be public, right? I mean, like, like. When, people when, want to be able
0: know, to invest in the IPO of Google at Google's IPO valuation and they don't want to be able to invest in the IPO of uh, pets.com, pets.com
1: yeah I know um, yeah, and like you know when when Uber was private there were there were some articles that were like isn't it a shame that you don't get to invest in Uber as a private company and there were some other articles that were like isn't it a shame that Fidelity is investing hardworking regular people's money in Uber mm-hmm. And the jury is a little out on who was right but like um, but uh, You know that's like that's absolutely attention right and and you know a lot of when people complain about this thing this this like issue of it being hard for public investors to get access to growing companies a lot of the blame gets put on like relatively recent regulatory changes that have made life for public companies harder Mm -hmm. about like Sarbanes-Oxley and like conflict mineral disclosure where companies have to like say if they have conflict mineral, you know, like, all these like disclosure obligations that have made it more just difficult for companies to be public and I'm skeptical that that's like a big part of the reason Is like that's like a that's like a line item and you pay it right and like you get like yelled at a little bit like I don't know it seems to me like if you're a public company CEO, you can get yelled at a little. Um,
0: I also think there's, there's some trade-offs there. Um, so I live in Japan where uh, we have a sharply different regulatory regime, including a, uh, a regulatory regime which is uh, quite in favor of companies going public extremely early in their right. life cycle. And so one could reasonably uh, uh, cause a tech company in Japan to go public on a uh, million dollars or $10 million a year of revenue, which is ludicrously early by right. American standards these days. Um, and one thing that we see in the Tokyo uh, startup ecosystem is that uh, like because startups are socialized to achieve an exit, and then typically the hyper-growth stops after you achieve an exit, given that you can achieve an exit at like, $10 million of revenue at evaluation that is plausibly in the $50 million or $100 million range, um, it is uh, difficult to incentivize people to like keep pushing until you've built a business that is worth billions of dollars. And so there are relatively few Japanese tech unicorns, uh, despite the depth and breadth of the Japanese economy yeah I mean like
1: like in some ways the u.s. experience feels like the opposite in that like incentivizes like revenue and customer growth at Mm -hmm. the expense of profitability because like you don't like you want to show as growth and and, like not necessarily um, Mm -hmm. you know a stable business for public companies
0: I think your newsletter that went out today had a uh, interesting angle on this uh, as it often does. the the angle being that the incentives of like the firm and individual actors within the firm and uh, uh, other stakeholders holders in the firm are supposed to be aligned but not always aligned and we'd love to to talk about that. Uh, uh, yeah it's
1: just like I mean you know like like the stereotype of the the, the moder- modern like US tech financial ecosystem is that investors are paying exclusively for growth Mm -hmm. and for like scale and network effects. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not like, exclusively is wrong, but like, you know, you look at like Uber and like, there are a lot of companies like it where people are willing to, where where venture investors and even public investors are willing to subsidize large losses Mm -hmm. as long as you're showing growth. And as long as you have a sort of plausible story about how you're going to like dominate the world for, for some you know some service that you're providing, and there's this view that profitability can kind of come later or be like a switch where like once you achieve world domination, you can just become profitable and One thing I think about that is that like it's hard you know i 'm just like a guy who writes on the internet it 's hard to be like venture capitalists are wrong about that right and like obviously. Obviously, sometimes that is right in a big way, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. Amazon is sort of that kind of story, right? And it's the yeah. one that everyone looks at, right? But even like you know, like Facebook is like almost that story. Like it was profitable long before, yeah. But like, it's a you know, it's a you know, the the story of like, seep into everyone's mind, mm-hmm. and like the money will come is like a very plausible story, and for some number of industries. Um, but like one thing it does is like you know what I wrote today was about MoviePass, which is this company that like did that mm-hmm. in a like transparently uneconomic way and like <laughs> ran out of money and is now like sort of foundering. But um, it, like, it was like, what if we sold movie tickets for way below their cost? <laughs> and everyone's like, yes, I will take that. And so they had rapid user growth. <laughs> and it was not a venture investment. It was, a, it, was a, it was like a relatively small private company that took a lot of money from a very weird public company. And then it was this sort of weird public hybrid. But, <laughs> um, but like there's a story today about like the founder of it who was pushed out before things got really weird and who has a new startup and who is like i'm getting lots of meetings with vcs because they're like wow you started MoviePass. that's Mm -hmm. great and you know you think about like what the incentives are for the entrepreneurs and managers Mm -hmm. in that ecosystem and you know the vcs may be right that like user growth is the you know is the way to profitability or that like one times out of one time out of fifty, it's the it's the way to profitability, and like mm-hmm. they have a portfolio model where that works for them. Yep. But from an entrepreneur's perspective, it's like I should just sell products below costs and get user growth, and like I'll be rewarded for that uh, by like I, limitless money.
0: I think counterintuitively that uh, so one I think from outside the ecosystem, like all VCs get lumped into one bucket. Where I, I bet from inside the ecosystem, it's different. Um, just like right. equity and uh, uh, equity and debt investors could have a uh, you know a different point of view on a company that struggled but didn't go bankrupt, uh, like a, a seed stage investor might think, well, uh, you know, primarily I'm investing on the chance that is this person going to likely create something that people uh, genuinely love, right. uh, which it which is like this relatively complicated technical undertaking, and from the perspective of like is this person more qualified to do a relatively complicated uh, technical undertaking? Like, I think there is, you know, a clear yes column here. Like, they were successfully able to ship a a piece of plastic that worked at every movie theater in America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, the the product function, like, did function. Um, Which puts them ahead of 90 plus percent of the pool uh, of uh, folks that are taking their uh, first meeting with a seed stage VC. So part of me, like, understands that. Um, And then part of me is like, well. True, so I'm like a financial person, like my, (laughs) like,
1: Like, in some ways, like, there are different questions, but like, in some ways, you can sort of reduce them to like one investing question, which is like, what is the present value of like the expected future cash flows of this company, right? And uh, you don't know, right? Mm And there are signposts along the way, but like, um, you know, like, everything sort of telescopes back where like, if you're a seed investor, like, one thing you're thinking is like, will like the next stage people give more money for this idea than I gave for it. Yep. Right? Like there's, a, there's a sort of like um, like market evaluation where mm-hmm. you're like thinking about like, you know, what are the odds that someone will pay more for this, right? Mm-hmm. And like at some level all of that telescopes into like, what are the future cash flows of this company? Mm-hmm. Which is unknowable, but like right. um, and like from from my like sort of outsider like financing perspective like, it feels like you can answer like a lot of the like intermediary questions without answering that question or even with like a negative answer to that question where mm-hmm. it's like people will pay more for it if like the, you know, revenue goes up while, you know, costs continue to grow up or people will pay more for it if there's user growth. Mm-hmm. And so
0: like, uh, I think much like any other market, there's sort of a, uh, you know, a sentiment in the, uh, uh, like some sort of business cycle in the sentiment of buyers and sellers of, uh, of, uh, closely held tech companies. And there was definitely a period a couple of years ago where, like marketplace businesses were um, saying, well, you know, currently the unit economics, meaning for like, part- we lose money on a particular tra- transaction, but eventually we will be in a place where we make it up in volume, um, as opposed to like the desirable unit economics for a quickly growing marketplace business are you make a little bit of money on every transaction, you can't pay for the costs of like your engineering team and a quickly growing organization, but uh, eventually at scale you will get there. Right. And part of me is like, well, eh, that is like, you know, it's sort of what makes it hard and challenging, uh, mm-hmm. and and fun and challenging. Uh, like the uh, you know, right,
1: there is like a sort of like curmudgeonly finance view of like ah, these companies lose money. What are these people doing? And like mm-hmm. that can't be right, right? I mean, like like there is some you know non-zero probability that like these like that like this sort of like rapid growth, the world domination is in fact mm-hmm. enormously
0: lucrative. Right? Yep, and I think um, uh, you know everyone sees things from the. Uh, the lens of their own experience. Uh, like one of the things that struck me as I was walking around Manhattan is, oh my, there are these like huge, beautiful buildings everywhere, and they've been here for 100 plus years. And then if you, if I were to like just look at, like, oh, is you know our stock trades paying for these things? Like individual stock trades, they're almost too cheap to meter, so that isn't paying for that. But there's like 100 plus years of capital growth there. Uh, there's been a variety of uh, uh, different businesses and different uh, like improvements in the ecosystem that make it lucrative. Lucrative enough to sustain a giant industry in the heart of the city. And partly, I think, like the, the, the wonder and the challenge and the terror of uh, venture-capped uh, uh, businesses is like you're trying to build Manhattan and you have a seven to 13-year time horizon for doing it. Um, and so, like, some part of that portfolio is going to look like crazy and reckless at right. some points in time. And some parts will hopefully, like, knock and wood, eventually become part of Manhattan or part of um, a new industry to be named later. Cool um so one thing that uh, uh, folks on Twitter asked us to talk about is blockchain blockchain okay. blockchain uh, do you have any thoughts do you have any thoughts? I don't really have thoughts um, i
1: I don't know. I read about blockchain all the time um, it is you know there is a there is a vogue for blockchain that has mm-hmm. that has uh quieted mm-hmm. uh, there was a time when every bank and every um, financial intermediary, every like stock exchange, loves it. Um, <laughs> would announce a blockchain product, project, project, not product, and would say, you know, we're building a blockchain to trade loans or whatever. Um, and that was a fun time. Um, and periodically, you read articles about how there are ninety-seven of those product projects, and like ninety-five have gone nowhere, right, <laughs> or something like that and uh and so it's quieted down um, I don't know what to say about blockchain 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 it's like there is a um there's a broad sense that a lot of like technological infrastructure in the financial mm-hmm. industry is antiquated in some way or other mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes it feels a little you know there's always like you know, syndicated loans are traded by fax machine, you know, it takes two weeks. And some of that is like, well, there are like reasons where you need to like do diligence and you need to like sometimes get permissions to do it. And so like, there's like sometimes a reason for it, but it's, um, it's, it's, it often feels like the technology is a little creaky. Mm -hmm. And what I often thought about blockchain, blockchain, blockchain was that people would come up with ideas to modernize that technology Mm -hmm. that used the word and maybe some of the ideas from mm-hmm. blockchain, and w- when that was in vogue, they could go to like the CEO of the bank and say blockchain, mm-hmm. and uh, the CEO would give them a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, which was which was good because if you want to like modernize like you know modernize their technology infrastructure, it's not always like the top of the list for the CEO of the bank. Sometimes it is, right? And mm-hmm. like you see now, like you know. Deutsche Bank, as part of its like big endless restructuring, has now said we're going to commit a lot of money to fixing our technology, and they say that without using the word blockchain, right? So mm-hmm. there is some amount of like, like recognition that like yeah. having like modern, fast, interoperable mm-hmm. systems is good mm-hmm. for financial companies. But like for like a year, the way you said that mm-hmm. phrase was
0: blockchain, yep. and it did great. You know, uh, I think so. there've been uh, so this typically tends to go in waves. Uh, so. Uh, personal opinion only, but I'm uh, a, quite the cryptocurrency skeptic, uh, like, looking at the underlying technical artifacts, uh, you know, Merkle trees and uh, the uh, hashing and the Nakamoto consensus algorithm, like, those seem to be interesting in, a, in, like, the way that building a redstone computer in Minecraft is interesting, but, like, probably not going to be the advances that we build the world economy on. But, like, the social epiphen- phenomenon is exactly what you say, that uh, I think like the genius thing about uh, Bitcoin and the reason we'll be studying it for forever is that it gave uh, Bitcoins widely available very cheaply for no cost at the margin early, and essentially got uh, like caused those people to become evangelists for Bitcoin and blockchain the technology. And I would bet that that's the reason why it suddenly became uh, buzzworthy in places like uh, in investment banks and in media organizations because they're, they're local Bitcoin ev- evangelists. Like everybody had that office with that one guy who just wouldn't stop talking about it. Um, and uh, I do think that, like, there is a place for social phenomena around technology to, like, actually create concrete technolo- technological change. Like, there are, um, there were other, uh, like, tech waves that became memetic, like, the cloud. Uh, everybody's going to put their servers in the cloud and, like... Seen from the vantage of five to ten years later, well, everyone pretty much does put their servers in the cloud these days. Um, I would expect any tech startup founded this year to choose AWS or Google or Azure, etc., uh, over owning their own servers. And I think even if uh, one was in um, a you know director of IT at a uh, financial institution or an old-line economy company, you would need like an affirmative reason to choose building out another data center versus uh, just asking Amazon to do it for you. And so, like. That's socially interesting to me. Um, I think, like, as a technologist who touches parts of the financial systems and has sent his fair share of faxes in the last uh, three or four years, uh, like there are inarguably parts that are not great, uh, and some of them are getting um, sort of like upgraded in uh, in pieces, uh, and that's interesting. And then um, it's interesting whether like if blockchain creates this shelling point where we can get the right eight decision makers from the right eight companies in the room for a consortium about um, securitized lending like you were talking about uh, you know, whether they're going to ship a blockchain solution that has no doesn't share the technological underpinnings that anything that the blockchain enthusiasts would recognizably call blockchain um, but we had the right eight people in the room people, people, people computer, computer, computer it does the thing that we wanted it to do and has the advantages that people want to capture like for example, reducing settlement times, or um, decreasing the amount of uncertainty, or the amount of operational losses.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some amount of like
0: error, and mm-hmm. like, and like
1: human effort to reconcile error. Yep. And like.
0: That is the thing that I think is underappreciated outside both the finance and tech industries is how many, like, how many things can go wrong, which are ultimately resolved by a smart person getting a phone call and then running to a desk and typing up some stuff, and someone choosing to lose in some cases, a material amount of money.
1: Yeah, I just think that, like, you know, there is, like, like, some amount of the the error comes from, like, the non-interoperability of systems, like, within banks, mm-hmm. but certainly between banks, um, where, you know, like, the reason people say blockchain is, like, you know, there's like, a, there's, like, a central depository that keeps a record of who owns, you know, some financial instrument, and, like, mm-hmm. there are, like, banks that own that financial instrument and sometimes those records don't match up And if you had some way to like some technological way to just make sure those records matched up so you didn't have to like have everyone check them against each other <laughs> then like that would be better and so some amount of like just like you know like th- this technology is all sort of accreted and all has all been done by like somewhat secretive like you know competitive people and if there's <laughs> some way to make the technological system is more interoperable so that they kind of everyone is, is sort of sees the same thing at the same time Then that's good and like blockchain is a way of sort of capturing that notion mm-hmm. uh, It's the current way of capturing that notion but that notion is good whether or not like blockchain has any like technological magic to it.
0: Yep I think you uh, see that in the uh, uh, Like sometimes people take adjacent notions uh, and uh, sort of run with them as sometimes freestanding businesses. Like for example, the uh, uh, we've talked a lot recently about uh, the economics of discount brokerages where the, uh, the cost of trading has gone down from uh, you know, back in the 1970s, it was like $400 a trade and you had to call a human up to do it. And then uh, the uh, it's asymptotically approaching zero for professional traders uh, these days, but has not yet for, uh, well, up until recently had not for retail traders. And now we'll probably continue uh, asymptotically approaching zero because there are companies that are uh, starting to like, say, okay, the, the fundamental underlying cost of this is zero. We can make money in other ways than directly charging people for uh, for trading activity. Ergo, let's do that and use it as a marketing advantage.
1: Right.
0: Right. That was a statement in the form of a question. Uh, for people who want, uh, you can uh, Google my name and discount brokerages and, and see much more detail than that than you ever wanted to learn. Um, cool. Uh, so uh, is there what other like technological transformations aside from blockchain, or maybe being an actual technological transformation in blockchain cl- uh, clothing? Are you uh, interested in?
1: I mean, a thing that comes up all the time in the financial world is you know the sort of broad category of like machine learning and artificial intelligence and so forth, mm-hmm. um, which uh,
0: it's been oversold a little bit. Like. Yeah,
1: you know, it's interesting. I find it, like, particularly interesting applied to, um, it's, like, there's various, like, applications of, like, machine learning to finance, right? And so, like, a lot of it is, like, um, telling, like, 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 my job, my old job, like, (laughs) had a lot of, like, intellectual content to it and a lot of, like, human, like, skills to it, um, But, like, one thing it also had is we had a list of all the convertible bond deals, and, like, you could look at the list, and you could, like, do some spreadsheet functions on it, or you could just look at it, Mm -hmm. and you could be like, this company will be able to do a bond with, like, this coupon and this conversion Mm premium, And we had that list, and our competitors had a similar list. They all had spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. Um, But companies didn't necessarily have that list. So they didn't know. And like one service that we provided to them that was valuable mm-hmm. was we could come to them and be like, you would do a bond at like two up 20 or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And like one, ser- you know, and so like that's like a thing that like, it's like a big part of the investment banker's job. Mm-hmm. And like that, looking at that list, like you can get a robot to do that, right? So like there's a lot of like, like that sort of like, like when you sort of work in that job for a while, you like, you like learn to disaggregate, like the you, you, you become aware of some things that are like sort of very straightforward, like pattern matching mm-hmm. or like, Um, sort of like casual like regressions almost where you're like kind of look at a list and yeah it looks Mm -hmm. like that and like if you did a real regression or even had like a machine learning algorithm (laughs) right you'd have like even better you know knowledge than and like you know oh you have some judgment and some gut feel and this company is different because of this specific thing but like you know there's like the robot could could get a lot of the way there. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I think is really interesting in machine learning is like uh, is um, just like can a robot pick stocks better than a person? Which is Mm -hmm. like, not the investment banking function, but the pure like, uh, investing function. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's continual debates and, 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 uh, and developments around that.
0: I think one of the interesting things about machine learning, and as a technologist, there's like, I would consider a relatively small bucket of techniques that are actually machine learning, and then a relatively much larger bucket of things that are called machine learning by people who don't necessarily know what's going on under the hood. Um, but one thing that they share in common is that, um, like, data is abundant in the world. It exists in incompatible forms on all sorts of systems. It is necessarily incomplete and dirty, et cetera, et cetera. And a core competence of every machine learning team, uh, whether they're doing like real machine learning or something that kind of looks like machine learning at squint at it, is getting really good at like. Um, sort of productionizing, taking in vast amounts of data and uh, getting it clean and getting it into some useful format, and similar to the blockchain thing, where like blockchain creates a shelling point where companies that should be in the room together get in the room together and say, "Wouldn't it be great if our computers talk to each other?" I think machine learning creates a like it creates a business case for something which already had a business case. Let's get our data together and make it comprehensible, um, which couldn't get funding or couldn't get like executive buy-in at some points, but which now does because machine learning. And then, you know, if hypothetically, like machine learning system gets implemented and produces a staggering amount of vis- business value and an engineer has to like turn it off one day for 24 hours, the business will still have benefited by quite a lot by the uh, systems underpinning the machine learning algorithms that they eventually got installed. So, um,
1: I mean, it it, it seems like an interesting application to finance because, like, many areas of finance seem to to produce a lot of relatively clean data, right? (laughs) Not all, right? And, like, one possibility is, one likelihood really, is that if you took all the clean data (laughs) about stock prices and you, like, analyzed it perfectly, (laughs) it would be totally useless to you, right? Like, (laughs) that's, like, the sort of medium-form efficient markets hypothesis or whatever, right? Like that, mm-hmm. like, if you, like, knew everything about stock prices and everything that's, like, in companies' financial disclosures and, like, you had a perfectly brilliant machine learning, you know, algorithm that could analyze all of it, it would be unable to add any value in predicting stock prices. Um, but still, it's, like, you know, it's, like, it's performing, like, at replacement level, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that you used uh, stock prices as an example because, like, if you were to make some sort of... Uh, scale on like how hard and reliable data can be. Stock prices would be on one extreme end of the scale. But technologists who work with Data feeds from stock exchanges every day will probably like tear their hair out and say, "No, it's not like actually perfect. There there are missing gaps, and you get transactions that are uh, that are misordered. Sometimes things get uh, like canceled in ways that the stain, uh, the exchange like either didn't anticipate or explicitly told you not to anticipate, uh, et cetera, et cetera, And so there's like um, yeah, I mean some of that is time scales, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Right.
1: like some of it is like is like like there are there are, like there's a, like a you know look at stock prices and you know. Look at some massive data and decide mm-hmm. like which stocks to buy for the next like week, yep, month, year. But there's also like the people who are in charge of buying stocks for the next like fifty milliseconds, mm-hmm. like and there are a lot of them, mm-hmm. like they're like very in the weeds of the data and the yep. like specific timestamps and like because right, like their decision process is very different from that of like an investor, right? Like they're mm-hmm. they're thinking like what's gonna happen in the next, you know, very short time period where exact ordering is very important.
0: Yep. And um if you use that as sort of like the extreme end of the spectrum on where uh, where data is, by the standards of data, relatively reliable. There are many like many parts of the human experience that are nowhere near the and near that. Um, even in the financial industry, ask me about credit card systems. Sometimes we oh, got stories. Uh, but I think they will likely um, uh, our tools for operating on them will continue to get better as the. Uh, the benefits of operating on data in a scalable fashion continue to become more Yeah,
1: apparent. I mean, like one thing that is that is sort of like intriguing about finance is that, you know, it's like one story is like if you took all of like stock prices and all of like public financial reports and you combine them, you would probably not be able to generate any useful signal about what stocks to buy because, mm-hmm. because like the whole market has done that already, right? Like yep. that's like a thing that like, the market does is like incorporate all public information like that. And so a lot of what like actual, um, you know, like hedge funds and like investors looking for edge will do. And, and in particular, a lot of like, you know, automated computery investors looking for edge is like, look for alternative data sets that explain the world in ways that are not um, captured in reported financial statements. And they're like classics like, so, like credit card data is like one like well-known source of alternative data where like you go, figure out, like, you know, get a feed from a credit card company about, like, what people are spending money on, and like, oh, they're spending money on this company, I should buy their stock. Um, But then there's, like, the famous one is is that, that has become a sort of jokey cliche, is like, they fly a satellite, and you look at the parking lots, and the parking lots that have a lot of cars in them, like, those stores are good, and you should buy their stock. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's, like, eight examples like that that are famous, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, actually existing, like, quantitative funds probably have, you know, 50 signals like that or whatever, right? But um, <laughs> but like, what's intriguing is that like the whole, like the whole world is like, like all of human behavior is like a potential um, like target for that analysis. <laughs> and like, you know, and it's not a matter of like building a computer system that can do that analysis. It's, it's a matter of like a human or maybe a computer that like thinks of like, what's the next data set that we should like look for mm-hmm. and then, you know, and then, like, you have the subsequent question of how do we, like, clean and render that data, like, useful, but, like, mm-hmm. just, like, thinking about, like, what human thing would be interesting for a stock price model? Mm-hmm. You know, someone thought of, like, the parking lots, right? And the parking lots is, like, a straightforward one, but, mm-hmm. like, someone who could think of some more complicated human thing and read through it to to stock prices. Yep.
0: And I love how there's both the combination of things that are um, sort of more amenable to human, uh, sorry, to computer analysis that necessarily, uh, you know, are... Quantifiable and data-driven, uh, but one thing that a investor once described to me as a, uh, a thing that they would do to uh, help predict whether, like a um, you know, it's relevant for many kind of investors if a product like hits the launch timeline or not. And uh, a thing that they said that they uh, they would do is just uh, invite an engineer out for uh, sandwiches and ask. Uh, and uh, granted, that probably with publicly traded companies that might get close to insider trading, but uh, you know there are always humans in the world that have. Uh, uh, in, like individual data points that are relevant to the, uh, to the market and a good portion of market professional's jobs is finding the humans that have the correct data points and coaxing those data points out at them. Yeah, And right. then they'd, they'd figure out what the data points are, right?
1: Like figuring yeah. out like what,
0: like there's any number of operational
1: like things that you could quantify but that, mm-hmm. like aren't by default quantified and if you quantified the right ones you would like learn something but you don't, you have to know which are the right ones to quantify.
0: Yep. And uh, so uh, it's been a very excellent conversation. Thanks for coming out and having it. Uh, for folks who uh, are not on Matt's newsletter yet, I highly, con- highly recommend getting on it. Um, his Twitter is uh, Matt underscore Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, and uh, there's a pin tweet yours. there that will get you on the, uh, oh, yeah. uh, the Money Stuff newsletter. Um, I'm Patio11 on Twitter and most other places online, and I work at Stripe. We're very interested in the sort of uh, intersection of technology and finance, and in um, the thoughts about where the future of progress is, is going to take us. And so if anyone is interested in this sort of thing, uh, please reach out and say who else we should have be, uh, be having interesting conversations with. Thanks very much for joining me. Okay, thank you. Okay, And for timing, are you okay with just that clock in front of you to keep yourself... Sure thing. Good? Mm-hmm. Alright. Well, gentlemen, I'm going to walk away. <laughs> Sounds great. No pressure.
1: Hold up one second, I'll talk to you.